This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to Scholarly Podcast. My name is Juliana Ferreira. I'm an Associate Professor of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Sao Paulo and a member of the podcast team here at Scholarly. Today, we'll be discussing a paper published in HES Scholar entitled Co-Creating the ICU Pause Tool for Intensive Care Unit Ward Transitions. We will be joined by Dr. Lakshmi Santosh, the first author of the paper. Dr. Santosh, thank you so much for joining us today. Do you mind introducing yourself? Thank you so much, Dr. Ferreira. I'm Lakshmi Santosh. I'm an assistant professor in pulmonary and critical care medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, and I'm delighted to be here today. Thanks. Great. I'm going to jump into the question that really is, I think, the, the main one for me reading your paper. As I started reading, I suddenly became aware, and that's a little surprising, that, that there are no widely used standardized ICU ward transition tools. Why do you think that is? It's a really good question. I think many of us are familiar with the IPASS framework that is kind of a nationally standardized structured framework for the day to night handoff. So that's used in many residency programs and some fellowship programs nationwide and throughout the world. However, the ICU to ward transition, just as you mentioned, it tends to be less structured. It tends to be sometimes kind of an afterthought. I think that sometimes we don't realize that any time a patient is transitioning from one context to another, whether that's from the hospital to home or from the ICU to the ward, those transitions are inherently risky. Those patients are experiencing introductions to a new team of providers. They're experiencing a new set of people who are kind of inheriting a prior group of providers' thought process and clinical reasoning and work that's been done to advance their care. So just like the day to night transition, which we all know is inherently high risk, I would argue that this transition is similarly high risk and that's supported by the literature as well. I also think another factor is that many times people think of documentation as a burden, just something that we all got to do to get paid. Actually, we clinicians should be reclaiming documentation as something that we want that is useful to us and that we put in our documentation what we want to read and what we want to see. It should be more of a clinical communication tool rather than a billing tool. And I hope that this project really was designed by the users themselves, which we'll talk about, to make it a more structured communication tool between clinicians. Yeah, I think what you said makes a lot of sense. When we have to write notes as we feel that it helps us understand what's happening to the patient or communicate what's happening. It makes a lot of sense. And when you have to do something just because you have to do it because it's required, then it's a different story. I completely agree. So can you tell us about the motivation for the study? Were residents expressing concern with the ICU ward transitions? Or was it a demand for nurses or other professionals or a perception of an impact on quality of care our deficiencies in the transition process? Great question. And I can say a little bit of all of the above. Really, this project generated as a follow-up question that came about 
to an earlier study that we did with my colleagues, Dr. Rojas and Dr. Lyons from University of Chicago and Washington University of St. Louis. We were struck at that time, we were fellows across the country. We were struck about how different the processes were for transitioning patients at our three institutions. And my institution, like many, actually has multiple centers. We have a VA hospital, we have a county hospital and a tertiary care hospital. And even within one hospital, the different sites had different processes. So we were struck by the variability of these processes. And we know that within the patient safety and quality improvement and medical education literature, there's this common principle or theme that lack of standardization and more variability leads to bumpy, heterogeneous, uneven, unstandardized, and potentially unsafe processes. And that standardizing work, right, the whole concept of standard work is that things are done the same way every single time so that we don't forget, just like we have our ICU checklist at the end of our plan on rounds to make sure that nobody forgets the DBT prophylaxis, the central line, et cetera. These checklists, you know, like Dr. Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto, the checklist helps as an accessory brain or a behavioral nudge to help us make sure that we cover the same content reliably every single time. So we were struck by the heterogeneity of processes within our institutions, and that prompted us to think, hey, how could we make this better, but not from a top-down philosophy of we're going to make something that we think is good and give it to you, but really rather from a co-creation philosophy that let's actually go to the actual users. And our study was resident physicians to see how they process this information and how they wanted this information to be conveyed in a structured, standardized way. So you've used a, a, a well, at least for me, it was a new method. It's called the human-centered design methods to create the ICU ward handoff tool. Can you briefly explain why you selected this methodology and how it works? It's a great question. And it was really fun for all of us to learn this new methodology as well. So the whole human-centered design or design thinking methodology, again, comes from that concept that we might think we know what's best for users or doctors or nurses or patients, but actually when you get the actual users of a tool or a technology or an innovation engaged in the design process throughout, you will get unexpected insights and you'll get more buy-in and a deeper understanding of what the user needs. So it's this amazing process, you know, often used in other sectors, not just healthcare, even in other types of innovations, architecture, healthcare, the business world, the technology world, Silicon Valley, all of these places to design things. One of the classic examples that they use is how they use this process to actually work with kids at pediatric hospitals to redesign a new pediatric MRI machine that wasn't scary and loud and banging. And there's beautiful pictures that you can look at online of the traditional MRIs versus the human-centered design process, the ultimate MRI, where they would decorate these kids' hospitals' MRIs to be beautiful galaxies. And the MRI was kind of like a spaceship. And they would tell the kids, you're going into the spaceship now to basically reduce fear and anxiety in a population who had to get these MRIs for their medical treatment. How might we make that process better? And so that's the fundamental question when it comes to human-centered design is thinking about how might we make this process better. And so it goes through these logical steps where first, instead of, again, tackling the problem 
headfirst with what we think is no best or based on the prior literature with what we think is no best. But you actually start with an exercise in empathy to deeply understand the problem. And so you start by going to the users, the main stakeholders to say, tell us about a time when the ICU to ward transition was rough for your patient. What did you experience? How did you cope with that? What did that feel like to you? And then from that empathy, then you define the problem, clearly articulate it. Then you ideate around it, brainstorm and develop solutions around it. Then you go to the fun part of prototyping where you say, let's mock up different solutions and actually rapid cycle testing. So that process is very rich, very rewarding. It has a structured methodology and framework just like other types of methods that we learn. And it really goes to the heart of what's important to the user. Oh, that's great. And I love the comparison with the uh, MRI for kids. You mentioned in the study that you were already conducting your study when the COVID pandemic hit us. What adaptations did you need to implement to conduct the creation process virtually? And do you think that human-centered design methodology can be as effective virtually as it is in person? And I ask that because I, I think one thing we learned from the pandemic is that some of the virtual thing can be useful in the sense that you can get people from like all parts of the world together to create a, a tool like that. So do you think it, it works very well or as, as good as uh, virtually now? So we were pleasantly surprised with how well it worked. So our original human-centered design thinking sessions, it's basically like a mini innovation lab where you gather people together to brainstorm, we have colorful sticky notes on board, we have poster board, we have markers, things to get the creative process going. And we had to really rapidly pivot during the pandemic to do these sessions virtually and thinking, ooh, it's not the same, they're not in the same place, they're not gathering together, they're not playing with these tactile materials of post-it notes or markers or things like that. How could it possibly be the same? We found that the ingredients really to a successful group like we've learned in many other situations, it's not about the technology or the fancy tools. The key ingredients are a skilled facilitator and engaged enthusiastic participants. And when you have those, absolutely it can be done virtually. I think we've seen similar themes about pivoting to virtual forms of education in the medical education world, right? That when you have a lot of fancy bells and whistles and technology, it may not necessarily help you, but if you have a skilled facilitator or educator and eager and enthusiastic participants and the core ingredients of learning, you can take advantage of that asynchronous learning, can take advantage of that virtual space and community building. And the residents that we talked to actually found it fun and engaging and nice to participate in the groups virtually. Sure, they could be in person playing with post-it notes over free pizza as an incentive, but they still found it rewarding. We we're still able to get the information that they needed with their input. In fact, there are some barriers that make it a little bit easier. In fact, for example, some people may have a barrier of having to drive from one hospital site to another or to the main campus to get to a place on time. But with the option to virtually participate, they could participate from home, from the other hospital site when they're in transit, Etc. So it actually does even remove some barriers. And the chat box, as we know, through virtual education is a whole different type of communication 
connection that's not done in person, where perhaps you might get some people who might be a little bit shyer to participate in person. In the virtual era, there's a little bit of democratization of the space that we're all in it together as little Zoom squares and all ideas matter and all ideas are valid. And so some people actually might have spoken up a little bit more. We actually wrote about our insights about how to do the Zoom focus groups with a separate ATS scholar piece called Zooming into Virtual Focus Groups. I encourage you to check it out to learn more about our insights. Uh, that's great. And I think it, to me, it looks like there could be many applications of this technology or this methodology virtually. You had three sites, right? Three hospitals or hospital complexes. And each of these sites held separate workshops. It was two workshops lasting two hours each to prototype the ICU ward two. How similar or how different were the perspectives of residents from these different sites? And how did you deal with that? And, and I asked because each hospital might have unique issues with ICU ward transitions that would then impact their perspective or their prioritization of what would be an ideal tool? It's a really good question. And one that we were very mindful of, and that's the reason we wanted to have multiple sites for generalizability. If you say, oh, residents at this site thought this was good, it's less generalizable than if you say, hey, a diverse group of residents across multiple years, across multiple sites, across the country, actually honed in on the same themes. And we were struck by how remarkably similar the themes were. Again, at the end of the day, what residents want is to take the best care of patients in a safe way and to have that information displayed or conveyed in a very user-friendly way to minimize the whole concept of what we call rework when you're going back to the chart or calling back to the ICU or going back to the patient and family again and retaking the same history or muddling through the chart for hours. So we were struck by the consistency in themes across the three sites. Yes, definitely did people have hyper-local suggestions to say, oh, I hate it how in our electronic health record, this information is conveyed like this. But when you get people as a facilitator to zoom out and to talk about the bigger picture, just the concepts, they were remarkably similar. Right. So again, the, the, the role of the moderators or facilitators is absolutely crucial, right? I think you're right that the facilitator, we spent a lot of time writing up a detailed facilitator guide. I think for any focus group, the facilitator has to be someone who's trained, experienced in facilitating, and who can help people zoom out when they get a little bit sidetracked. And, you know, that's one of the fun things about qualitative research in general is the facilitator has this role of listening deeply, empathically, and also making sure that we stick to the task at hand and also take those little detours that may be equally instructive and valuable. You mentioned in the, in the paper that one of the main concerns of the trainees while they were developing the tool was finding the appropriate balance between thoroughness and usability. How did they work around this challenge to find balance? And do you think there's a, a one size fits all balance? Or could this vary depending on institution characteristics? I, I think it kind of goes back to what we just talked, right? How can you make the tool useful and, and not too long and also include everything? That's a, that's a big challenge for me. 
It really is. I think, again, this is something that we struggle with globally in documentation. You will have the intern who will write that excruciatingly, painfully long discharge summary or transfer summary that while it's a work of art, nobody will actually read it because it's too long. And then conversely, you might have something so brief and boilerplate and auto imported data without much free text analysis or synthesis that it's essentially useless. You'll say, well, that was a waste of time. It was so brief and it didn't provide me any information. So I think this is something that we as educators in the intensive care unit have to be really thoughtful about coaching our trainees about really on a daily basis. One thing that I tell trainees all about all the time is in the ICU, your note is a snapshot in time and it's outdated the moment you write it. And so getting people to really change that whole mindset of the note is a brain dump of all the data and all the things that happen to really the concept of synthesis. And so we try to include elements that were a combination of auto import and free text. And when you had to free text, we made it something that was involved with synthesis. You had to really synthesize the pertinent physical exam and call that out or synthesize what are the high risk meds and call that out rather than just an auto import giant med list with all the normal saline flushes that no one's going to read. They're just gonna skim past that. But if you call out the pertinent things, if you make that balance between being sensitive to what's already in the health record, but also calling out those high risk things, then people are gonna take that content more seriously to say, hey, they're actually actually abstracting for me the high risk, high yield data that I need to know. And to your point about customizability, absolutely. Just like with the iPass framework of data night transitions, we hope that each institution will do a little bit of customizability based on what works in their local context. For example, some institutions have a whole separate place where they can click on easily to look at prior notes regarding goals of care conversations or advanced care planning. So that section, that section in the template might be a little briefer, might be less built out than another hospital where they say, oh, we don't actually have a place in our medical record where this is documented well, let's house that information here. Some places wanted to add more information to the checklist to say, you know, what Foley day blank, central line day blank. While other institutions said, you know what, we already have that information about the date the Foley was put in, the date the central line was put in on a separate lines and drains tab. So there's no need to recapitulate it here. So we hope that this is the scaffolding. This is the standardized work, the standardized way to communicate about this, but that sites should absolutely be free to customize. Because again, the whole point is that we want to take the concept away from notes being busy work and make it into a clinically useful communication tool. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. For example, you, you mentioned in the paper that allergies were not included because they were this was registered elsewhere in the electronic health records. That in my institution, for example, it, it is everywhere, but it's not easy for the physician to read. So I, for example, in my institution, I would say let's add a, like two lines for that because it's quick and it's important and it will call everyone's attention to that. It's a great example. So the tool has been created mainly as a customizable template and as, as a note in the electronic medical record. So it, it, you wouldn't need any 
oral communication, do you think that the implementation would need to involve training teams to do so effectively, avoiding both leaving important details out and overcrowding? And I, I think you touched a little bit about this. And I, it looks to me that it will be important for educators. We have to teach residents and interns and how to prioritize what needs to be there and, and, and what doesn't need to be there, right? That's exactly right. I think the age-old saying is garbage in, garbage out, right? <laughs> so if you don't tell people what our expectations are, how we want them to use this tool, then we can't be disappointed if we are delivered with something that's not ideal. So absolutely, I think some brief coaching, just walking through the elements is something that is helpful just to get that shared mental model, to get everyone on the same page of what are we looking for? What does this phrase mean? We try to make it relatively self-explanatory, yet I've even seen in, in my own institution, for example, that people have a very different reaction if I send them a slide deck than if I just do a 10-minute walkthrough with them. So when we're implementing across sites nationwide, which is what we're in the process of doing right now, we actually have an implementation bundle where we have a brief slide deck that we go over to educate both the champions at each site and then to use that educational material to educate the residents or the APPs or other users of this template. So we have kind of a standardized structured slide deck to use to educate champions and users. And we also have some handouts to again, reinforce and make it easy because you're exactly right that for any tool, if you just give it to somebody without any training, sure, we can kind of play around with it and figure it out. But if we want a shared mental model of how it's going to be used, it's better to walk through it together. And investing that really 10 minutes of training up front can be more useful than to say, figure it out and go for it and then be disappointed with what comes out. And one of the one of the comments that I thought was interesting from the residents that you show on the on the paper is that they one of them said that it could be an activity for senior residents or fellows to supervise younger residents uh, when they do this. So someone to read the notes and, and help them edit and take out the clutter and, and again, make sure that nothing important is out. I thought that was really interesting. I think that this whole concept of that near peer mentorship and of that gradual autonomy, supervision, balance, and medical education is key. At our own institution, years ago, the day-to-night handoff was a completely unsupervised process where the day intern would go find the night intern to sign out. And as you know, people are coming from medical schools from all over the country with various training and experience in the whole sign-out process. So that night intern was getting kind of vastly different qualities of sign out, some of which were outstanding and some of which left some to be desired. So we started a process where actually early on in the year, the senior resident or if they were unavailable, the attending would just watch the first couple of verbal sign outs at that day to night transition just to make sure that the intern was conveying the proper information. And then when they were kind of deemed ready for independent practice or ready to perform that task autonomously, they could sign out as we did in the, in the good old days where you just find your night intern and sign out to them directly. But I think we're realizing more and more in medical education that especially when, when we're bringing in people from so many different training backgrounds, from so many different experiential backgrounds, it's not helpful from an educational lens to just kind of quote, throw people in and let them figure it out and then be disappointed when 
the night resident didn't have the information that we needed, but actually taking the time to do a little bit of structured coaching, a little bit of feedback, and a little bit of that almost shadowing or observation, structured observations, it doesn't have to be every time, right? Once you know when you see a trainee, if they're ready or not to do a task independently and communication, we're learning more and more is a procedure just like arterial lines and central lines where you might need a little bit of supervision up front and then you can be autonomous with that procedure. So I think thinking of communication as a procedure that can be learned, that can be taught, that can be coached, that can be observed, and then people can get feedback on is a new way of thinking in medical education that we're just getting our, our feet wet in. The tool has eight items or domains, which are the letters of ICU pause. Do you believe this is close to an ideal length uh, to do pilot tests to, to measure how long it takes to complete it? And if the final results are considered useful by stakeholders, I, I understand you haven't yet uh, implemented it, but did you do any pilot testing to, to see how it would work out in, in real life? Absolutely. So early on, one of our sites, actually, Washington University in St. Louis, was our initial pilot site where they implemented this right away in 2019. And so we were easily able to get feedback early on that this wasn't too cumbersome. It was the right length. It didn't take people too long to do. And when we're doing now training at other sites, we often will take people to their electronic health record and say, hey, let's try to fill this out together for a hypothetical patient of yours. And we found that, again, because we're doing that user-generated feedback, the residents in our institutions rotate on both sides, if you will. They rotate in the ICU and in the wards. So they know what kind of information they're looking for as both givers and receivers. And that's why we thought that was a valuable population to target. We've also done some follow-up testing looking at hospitalists, perceptions of hospitalists, again, receivers, as to how they're perceiving the tool and its usability. And so we have found that in our pilot testing with our pilot site, Washington University in St. Louis, that it's about the right length, it's informative, there's high user satisfaction. And again, a follow-up project that we have ongoing is scaling this up from some pilot sites to some validation sites to implement it nationally on a larger scale to see if this is replicated and how different institutions might locally modify it to their needs. That's cool. The tool was created by residents and has mostly physician-oriented information. Is it intended to be used only by physicians or do you think it could be used by other healthcare professionals uh, as well? I'm thinking since it doesn't include information about wounds, for example, or, or diet or mobilization, do you think other healthcare professionals would need to create their own transfer documents with a similar approach? And I know in my institution, nurses tend to do a like a, a telephone transfer. How do you think this the, tool, the new tool that you've developed will interact with the other, I don't know, systems we use to, to communicate transitions? It's a great question. One concept that I love to emphasize is the concept of layers of safety, that Swiss cheese of the layers of patient safety. And we found in our earlier work that just as you said, the nurses do a great job actually when there's transitions of care in communicating to each other, right? The nurses have a structured way during which they call report, as they say, 
and the ICU nurse will talk to the floor nurse about everything from wounds to nutrition to what's the family like, and they have a structured template to do so. So again, it's another interesting contrast that as physicians, we do not necessarily have that structured communication tool. So this tool addresses a little bit of a gap in that there's not a standardized physician communication tool at the time of transfer in contrast to our nursing colleagues who actually do a pretty good job of this. And then some of the communication literature have led the way with communication frameworks, for example, SBAR being a classic nursing communication framework that led the way well before physician communication handoff were kind of publicized and wide, there was wide awareness about that topic. I think that, again, it's about the users. If there was a user group that said, this is really helpful for our users and our population, we would welcome adoption and modification for other users. Because this, as you said, was studied in resident physicians who work in the, both the ICU and the medicine ward, we don't know if it's generalizable. I suspect that, like you said, there are aspects that are generalizable to other groups of clinicians, and there are aspects that are not as useful for other groups of clinicians. So I hypothesize that other groups of clinicians may want to customize this, could build off of it, but some groups such as nurses already have great structured communication tools, and we don't necessarily want to reinvent the wheel if it's not working well. But if there's stakeholders that want to use this framework, we welcome that and welcome interesting modifications for different contexts and users. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the sub-themes you explored during the creation of the tool was multifunctionality. Now that the tool is ready, do you see the applicability of this tool for other purposes, such as uh, day-night handoff or for rounding as one of the residents commented during the, the focus groups? It's a great question. One area that we see it could have multiple purposes is that it is a it is an, a nice supplement or adjunct to verbal communication. So just like the IPASS structure, ideally you would write it down and you would have that verbal communication. This is a similar concept where it's great for written communication and verbal communication at the time of handoff. So we hope that it will facilitate verbal communication as well. I don't think rounds might be a good vehicle for this communication necessarily, because again, rounds is a totally different purpose and rounds itself is very interesting. I, I, I would love to do some studies on the rituals of rounds. And there are some of our colleagues who have written on the differences in rounds. For example, at our own institution, we've actually recently changed our rounding structure to be more nurse-led rounds. That's an innovation that we adapted from other institutions where they do nurse-led ICU rounds, where the nurse will give the overnight events and the vitals, and then the trainee will actually take it from there with the labs, the imaging, and the assessment and plan. And we found that it's quite efficient and streamlined. In pediatrics, they're a big fan of bedside rounds and patient and family-centered rounds. And that's another principle that we can learn a lot from in adult IC world. So I think rounds is a whole nother context. And I don't think this tool would necessarily translate to that context, because I think that there are different things that we need on rounds, such as 
pertinent labs, pertinent imaging, overnight events that are not readily captured on this tool. So I'm definitely aware of the limitations of this tool. I think that being a verbal and written tool for the handoff at the time of transfer is where this is best applicable. And of course, we're open to other areas where this might be used. I don't see rounds as being one of them, however, for those reasons. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess one thing that, that's interesting, I mean, common among all, all of those activities for residents, at least, is learning how to prioritize information, how to communicate and how to make sure that, you, again, that you include everything. And, and I think it will be one more tool to help trainees learn how to communicate information about their patients. I think you're exactly right. And the more we expect these kind of structured communication tools and the more that we talk about this concept of the electronic medical record, the health record being a snapshot in time and kind of educating trainees to do their own synthesis in notes or in transfer documentation or in discharge summaries, the better off we'll be once we get away from this concept that, oh, just get your notes done and get out of here and really talk about what is the purpose of notes and how can we make it more useful for all. Yeah, that's, that makes a lot of sense. What do you see as the biggest challenges and facilitators to implement this tool? Great question and one that we're actively experiencing right now as we're in the implementation process. I think that one barrier is that as always, change is hard, change is hard to implement, change is hard to understand. And that oftentimes without quote a burning platform, without a document that says, hey, these are the medical errors that actually happen every day as a result of these handoffs, without that burning platform quote, there's so many other competing priorities that people are facing. So asking people to make a change when there is no quote burning platform is challenging. That's a barrier. I think a facilitator is that people are excited to find a better way of doing things. So in centers where they have already perceived that our current system isn't working too well and we can make it better, people are excited, eager, and enthusiastic to try something new. In places where they say, this is not a big problem for us, this is more of an afterthought, there's less motivation to institute a change rather than centers where they say, I've self-identified this as something that our process is currently not doing well and we wanna change it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I have a last question for you and you kind of mentioned it before. What are the next steps? Are you planning a study to measure implementation of the tool? And, and if you are, what are the outcomes that you think would be important to measure? This is a great question. And we invite any interested sites to contact us too, if they would wanna be part of the implementation project. It's really fun and exciting. We're in the weeds on our implementation project right now, looking at a diverse variety of centers across the country, a mix of community medical centers, academic medical centers, and everything in between, looking at sites that have residents, looking at sites that have advanced practice providers and everyone in between. And we're looking at outcomes such as basic implementation and penetration of the intervention. You know, how many percentage of notes actually use this template? Looking at local modifications, how do people modify it? 
if they did so at all. And then again, we want to circle back to our earlier themes from our prior work to say, hey, did this actually help you with this concept of rework? Did you go to the medical record again and again less than you had to before? Were you satisfied with this outcome? So a combination of implementation metrics, satisfaction metrics, as well as metrics about rework and medical errors are what we hope to look for in our next steps. That's great. Dr. Santosh, it was great having you here at Scholarly today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. It was great chatting with you, Dr. Ferrer. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org slash scholarly. Thanks again for listening and have a great day.